Well, we come now this morning to the beginning of a brand new series, brand new sermon series. So we finished our series on on biblical reformed worship. Last week we had a Reformation Day sermon. And now I'm excited to begin a new series. And I, I made a gesture or um, I made a sort of off-the-cuff comment in a couple of different sermons over the past few weeks about how John 3.16 isn't the only good 3.16 in the Bible. There are some other ones. Well, this series is going to be about that. Um, I've gone through all 66 books, and not every book has a 3.16, but I looked at all the ones that did, and I narrowed it down to what I think are the top 10 3.16s of the Bible. And at the end, we'll have a bonus one. So it's 11. So top 10 plus a bonus for Christmas as a gift. You're welcome. So, and we're not going to go in order of like, you know, number one, 316, number two. We're not going in like a ranking. I'm just going to go in canonical order. So we're just going to start at the beginning, go to the end. And these are going to be the top 10 316s of the Bible plus a bonus at the end. So today, I'll invite you to turn with me for our first 316, Genesis 316. Take your Bibles and join me in Genesis, the third chapter, verse 16. And I'll ask you if you'll please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Uh, For a little bit of context, I'm going to back up and I'm going to start with verse 14 And I'll read through to verse 21. Our focus will be around verse 16. So, beginning in verse 14, Genesis chapter 3. This is God's holy word for us as people today. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word today. Father, we give these next few moments as the rest of this service. We give it over to you completely. We ask that you would speak to us from your word. Bless the reading, and now we pray you would bless especially the preaching of this word. Write your truth upon our hearts and stamp your truth upon our lives. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think it's safe to say that in our day, marriage is not doing well. There are basic conflicts, quarrels, misunderstandings that come from two people living together that lead us to say and to do harmful and hurtful things to one another. Just the basic insensitivity or inattentiveness or thoughtlessness that we all fall into from time to time. There's the widespread lack of skills in managing conflict and navigating through fights in a healthy way. There's disagreements and tensions between husband and wife that many of us don't know how to process or how to deal with. There is, of course, the pride and self-centeredness and selfishness that causes us to insist on our own goodness or the rightness of what I did or what I said, and that causes us to ignore or undermine or even to belittle the worth of the other person and the value of their needs and their perspective. And, of course, sadly, tragically, at the extremes are the bitterness and maliciousness and vindictiveness that develops between some couples that comes with unthinkable varieties of verbal and physical abuse, threats and manipulation, unfaithfulness, all resulting in a whole spectrum of traumas and broken families and broken hearts. Now, not all marriages are like this, of course, not in the extremes anyways, but even the best marriages and the happiest couples are deeply affected by sin and are broken at some level and to some extent. This was not God's original design for marriage. God instituted marriage to be a source of tremendous good and benefit and blessing to both spouses. And yet something went terribly wrong. Something is terribly wrong. Men and women have fallen from God's intention. And marriage is now a source both of great blessing and of great sorrow. In our passage this morning, in the first 316 of the Bible... We learn why marriage is not the way it's supposed to be. Genesis 3.16 is about the fall of marriage. But before we see the fall of marriage today, let's back up and let's look at God's original design. The first institution... God ordained for humanity is marriage. And the first marriage was an arranged marriage. God created a man 
and a woman. And he gave them to one another for their good and for the good of their children that they would have and for the good of God's new world. To see this, let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and look at God's original design. So back up with me to Genesis chapter 1 and let's look at verses 26 to 28. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him... Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So what do we see in these verses from Genesis 1? What we see is that male and female are made in God's image. God makes men and women fully and equally in His own image and in His own likeness. And notice what they are. They are made to be together, and they are made to go and subdue, to have dominion over the good earth God has made. In other words, God has created not just an ordinary man and an ordinary woman. God has created a king and a queen over God's world. Those who are to go into God's world and have dominion. That's government language. That's kingdom language. They are to rule. They are to subdue. They are to go out and do with God's earth what he calls them to do. Not only that, they are to go out and to be fruitful and to multiply. So, this king and queen are told to go out and start a royal family to go and populate their earthly realm. And as they do, their families are to grow and extend, and they are to go and create houses and neighborhoods and communities and society and to make culture and to build a civilization to bring God's rule upon the earth, to govern God's earth in wise and holy ways, to steward His creation that He made very good, and to be His images in creation, to reflect Him, to image Him forth, to be the picture of God in the world, and to govern the world and to fill it with all of God's goodness, cultures and families and societies that reflect the image of God as well. This arrangement, God says in verse 31, is very good. If you're, this, is, this says this is the sixth day. All through creation, days one through six, God sees the result of his work and he says, and it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. 
But you get to day six, and when God sees the arrangement of male and female, king and queen of creation, starting a royal family, a married couple, given God's task to subdue the earth, he says, oh, this is very, very good. Very good for them, Adam and Eve. Very good for their family that they're going to start. Very good for God's world. Now let's jump forward to Genesis chapter 2. Let's look together, first of all, at verses 7 and 8. With this image of God, royal family starting point, let's jump forward now to Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, what we see is that these two people, male and female, Adam and Eve, made in God's image, they are both now to be equal partners, but with different roles in this calling that they received in Genesis 1. Go forward with me to Genesis 2, verses 7 and 8. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Skip ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the, of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, and we get the first poem in the Bible, and it's a love poem. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the chapter ends by saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What a picture. God made Adam directly from the earth, we're told. And Adam had a job to do. He was put in the garden to keep it, to guard it, to work it. That's how this fill the earth and subdue it mandate starts. It starts with a garden in a region called Eden. And in that garden, Adam is placed. So you start small. Adam's told, look, the the ultimate goal is to go out into the world and subdue it. But you can't start with the world. You've got to start with your patch of earth right where you are. So he starts with his garden. He subdues his garden first. And from there, we build. He has a job to do, but it's not good that he does it alone. 
And you notice, this is the first time in Genesis in this creation story that we get not good. God saw that it was good, day one. Day two, good. Day three, good. Day six, very good. Then God rests on the seventh day. And then on Monday, he says, man, this is not good. (laughs) See, God doesn't like Mondays either. (laughs) This is not good. (laughs) It's not good that this man is alone to do this task. So, what does God do? He becomes the divine matchmaker. In verse 18, it says that it's not good that he should be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. And then in verse 19 and 20, we get this parade. Like God starts a zoo and he makes all these animals. And then he passes them before the man and he says, what do you call this one? Hmm, that one is... You see, Adam starts out very sophisticated. Hippopotamus. Hmm. Giraffe. Aardvark. By the end, he's like, fly. (laughs) Not creative. He got tired, right? So there's this parade of animals going in front of Adam. And God says, what would you call this one? I would call that one dog, cat, cow. And he's just going down the list... And, and it says at the end of verse 20, but for Ad, he gave a name to everything. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. None of these animals were going to do the trick. It's not what Adam needed. They were not a match for him. And so you back up to verse 18. You see the same language at the end of verse 20, a helper fit for him. And in verse 18, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, this language in Hebrew, a helper fit for him, is very interesting. The word for helper there, an ezer in Hebrew, an ezer, is a strength, a support. And that word, that phrase, fit for him, is just one complex word in Hebrew, kanegdo. A kanegdo is a equal. It's his equal is what it means. A neged in Hebrew is an equal. So what he makes, what God makes for Adam is a strong equal, a strengthening match. Sometimes it's the footnote in the ESV says corresponding to and that's, that's the right idea. Someone who corresponds to you, that matches you, that's your equal. God makes the man a strong equal for him. In other words, Adam has met his match. And, and that's the play on words here. Adam meets his match. This is his wife. This is someone God makes for him. The animals won't fill that role. The woman does. So it's his match in that sort of romantic marriage relationship sense, but also it's his match in the sense that she's equal to him. She's his strong equal, his support. Eve, we're told after this, that she comes from Adam's side. All the other animals come from the dust of the earth like Adam did. So God makes all these other things from the dust of the earth. And parades them past Adam. He says, none of those will do. None of those will work. They're not my match. 
They're no match for me in that double meaning of match. And so the only place Adam can find a match is someone who comes from from his own body. And so God puts Adam to sleep. And I heard... I heard one preacher make this very astute observation. The text says God put the man to sleep to make the woman. It never says that he woke him up. That's why men are pretty clueless. Right? We're still asleep. Amen. It's okay. Adam is put to sleep. God takes something from his side. And notice it's his side. It's not his foot. It's not his leg. It's his side. And she is to be at his side. She comes out formed into a woman. He says she will be called a woman because she was taken from man. And man and woman in English, it's, it works the same in, in Hebrew. It's just the other way around. In Hebrew, a man is an ish, and the woman is isha, man and woman. She was taken out of man, just the female version of Adam. She is his equal. And in the New Testament, Jesus is compared to a, to a husband and the church to his bride. And Paul says that we are both the bride of Christ and the body of Christ, just like Eve was the body of Adam and the bride of Adam. She was taken from his side to stand at his side as his strong equal, equal partners, equally made in the image and likeness of God. And in this poem where he says, this is the last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, He's saying that this one finally is, it's, she's my very bone. She's my very muscle. She is his champion, his companion, his pillar and support. The body couldn't stand without its bone and its muscle, and Adam cannot stand without Eve. She is God's gift to him to assist him in the work God has called him to do. They are equal partners with different roles. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Adam was made first and Eve was made from him and for him, not the other way around. And that's why Adam has this role of leadership and service and Eve has this role of love and support. And they have to go together. Leadership, service, love, support. Husband and wife are supposed to be in a complementary relationship. And that's complementary with an E, not an I. Compliment with an I is, oh, those are nice shoes today. You look very lovely today. That's a compliment with an I. A compliment with an E means you complete each other. They're supposed to be in a complementary relationship where both are elevated. Neither are denigrated or pushed down. Both are elevated. Both are encouraged. Both flourish in the lives that God has called each of them to pursue. This is the original design for marriage. So what went wrong? 
Genesis is the book of beginnings. That's what Genesis means, beginnings, or the book of origins. As I said, our text in Genesis 3.16 is about the origin of broken marriages. It's about the fall of marriage. Look with me now in chapter 3 at verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, in the context here, she's being tempted by the serpent to eat from the tree that God said, Do not eat from that tree or you will surely die. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, Eve sinned in the fall by listening to the serpent and following his lead instead of her husband's, and she decided to do what was right in her own eyes. Adam sinned by listening to his wife and following her lead instead of listening to God and following him. These sins caused the breakdown of the roles in God's original design. And this breakdown is underlined in our passage in Genesis 3.16. So let's come now to 3.16. In, in verse 14, God says to the serpent, verses 14 and 15. In verses 17 through 19, God speaks to Adam but in verse 16, he speaks to the woman, to Eve. And this is what he says. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now that line in the edition of the ESV that I have, which is the most current edition of the ESV, it says contrary to. Your desire shall be contrary to. With a footnote that says it could also be translated as your desire shall be toward toward your husband. If you have a different translation or an earlier edition of the ESV, it might read a little something different. Like your desire shall be for your husband or maybe some language like that. I'm not sure what version you're using. Your desire in this version it says shall be contrary to. Why the disagreement about how to translate it? Well, there's a parallel verse, Genesis 4, 7. Look ahead to 4, 7 and notice how similar this is to 3, 16. This is God talking to Cain as Cain is about to go out and murder Abel. God intervenes and says, hold on a second. Think about what you're doing. And he says this in verse 7. God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And it's the exact same language. Sin's desire is toward you or for you, but you must rule over it. 
3.16, your desire shall be for or toward your husband, but he will rule over you. Do you see what's happened? The exact same phrase in 4.7 is clearly a negative opposition kind of desire. It's a negative desire towards that sin has towards you. But you've got to master it, Cain. You've got to beat it down. That's what's happening in 3.16. The disintegration of this relationship between husband and wife. Just as sin sets itself against Cain and Cain sets itself against sets himself against sin, so in marriage she will set herself against her husband. She will use that strength and equality that she has by God's design and she will use it to subvert him rather than support him. She will resent his headship resent his role, and continue to do what is right in her own eyes. What's fascinating is this word for, the word for uh, an equal in chapter 2, verse 18, or a helper fit for him, suitable for him, that word that's tr- that I'm translating as equal, it has another meaning in Hebrew. Its other meaning is adversary. The same word that means equal also means adversary. Which means the fall causes the woman to change from one meaning of that word to the other. To go from being the equal to being the adversary. And how does the man respond to his adversary? He shall rule over you. Parallel to Genesis 4, 7. Sin's desire is contrary to you, Cain, but you must rule over it. The woman's desire is contrary to you, man, so you must rule over her. That's what's happening. An adversarial relationship has been established. She uses her strength and equality to subvert him rather than support him. And he uses that headship or leadership role to subdue her rather than serve her. And so the fall is really a falling out. It's a falling out between husbands and wives. Wives will either tear their husbands down and beat them down with their words or try to control or manipulate or push around and husbands will either dominate their wives or they'll do like Adam's first sin and they'll shrivel up into little cowards and they'll let her do all the work and all the leading and take all the leadership responsibilities. And then they'll resent her because, well, I ought to be leading. See what's happened? Of course, not all marriages are, are like this all the time. And thank God for that. But these are the tendencies in the heart of the man and in the heart of the woman. These are the tendencies. These are the sinful forces that are at work in marriage that causes all that hurt and pain and turmoil and conflict and resulting in divorce and broken homes and broken hearts that we find today.
The fall is a mess. Sin just devastates relationships, and it just it turns us into each other's enemies, and we're not, we shouldn't be each other's enemies. So what can be done about the fallen state of marriage? From where will the deliverance of marriage come? Well, notice that 3.16 says something before we get to the desire shall be contrary and he will rule over you. Notice the first part of 3.16. It says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Notice that 3.16 says pain in childbirth is also a result of the fall. Men and women were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And now that will be a painful, difficult process. However, look at the previous verse, Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of the woman will be the deliverer who crushes the head of the serpent and saves God's people. And so although childbirth will be painful, through that painful delivery will come the deliverer. He will restore men and women. He will deliver marriage itself and he will ultimately take away pain itself. It's a, it's a sort of a play on words. De- the delivery of the deliverer, the birth of the Savior. And, and uh, in the song that you all know by Mark Lowry, Mary, Did You Know? He picks up on this connection between Genesis 15 and 16 in that song. He, there's a line in Mary, Did You Know? that says, you know, Mary, did you know this child that you delivered will soon deliver you. I love that play on words. Mark Lowry picks up on that beautifully in that Christmas song. The Apostle Paul, likewise, picks up on this connection uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul says, speaking of Adam and Eve, he says, yet she, Eve, will be saved through childbearing, or a better translation, delivered through childbearing, if they, women, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, critics of the New Testament look at this verse and say, oh, look at this disgusting chauvinist Paul, this sexist bigot. He, th- he said that women get saved by having babies. What a, what a terrible, horrible person. Now, if you know anything about Paul, you know that's not what he means. You know that that is contrary to everything Paul teaches about how you get saved. Faith in Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, this has nothing to do with having kids. Nothing to do whatsoever with, with childbearing. So what's he talking about then? Saved through childbearing, or delivered through childbearing. Well, it's a pun, isn't it? Delivered through childbearing, just like in Mark Lowry's song. What he means is, women will be delivered from the curse of 316. 
Because in childbirth, in bearing children, you will have pain and bring forth children. You'll be delivered from that through childbearing. Women will be delivered from the curse of 316. And women will be delivered through the birth of the deliverer. Women will be delivered, he says, in Christ, the deliverer, if they live a redeemed life. Only in Christ, Paul says, only in Christ is the curse lifted and women and men restored to God's original design. Only in Christ can marriage be delivered from the fall. What Paul's doing in 1 Timothy 2 is biblical theology. He's looking at Genesis 3.15 and 3.16. And the way Eve gets delivered from her curse is through the Deliverer coming and setting us free. The only way marriage gets restored and redeemed is in Christ. The only way marriages can be delivered is through the Deliverer, the one who was born to be our Savior, to do as Matthew one twenty one says, to save His people from their sins. Through the pain of the fall, God brings about deliverance through or from the fall. So Christian, in your marriage, in your marriage, wives, do not be your husband's adversary. Don't be one meaning of that word in Hebrew, be the other. Do not be your husband's adversary. Be his strong, supportive equal. Be his champion. Follow his lead, and if he's not good at it, empower him to lead. Build him up, encourage, support. Give him the strength he doesn't find in himself. Be his bone and his muscle, and use your words and your deeds to build and to make him flourish, not to tear down and beat and belittle. Give him some dignity. Give him some respect so that he has some confidence in himself and he knows you're with him and you're for him. Man, what a gift that is for a man to know that he has a rock and a champion at his side. And husbands, do not dominate your wife and do not cower and make her take all the initiative and do all the leading. Love her, serve her, lead her. She is your gift and your glory. In this church, let us pursue the deliverance of our marriages. If you're not married, become this kind of man or this kind of woman. Let us learn to live as the men and women that have been delivered by the deliverer, by Christ. Husbands and wives, you are not enemies. You are companions. Forgive each other. Help each other. Be honest with each other. Put the other person first. Build each other up. Lift each other up. Live in Christ's deliverance and pursue Christ together. If your marriage is struggling today, if it's on the rocks, if you're not sure if you're going to make it, there is hope for you. The deliverer has come and he can make all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent us the deliverer, that by the power 
of his cross, we can be new. The one who came to make all things new can make me new today. Help each one of us as we prepare our hearts to sing in response to this message and to get ready to move to the table and receive the sacrament of your broken body and your poured out blood. Help us, Jesus. Help us to trust in that sacrifice that can make us new. Help us to claim these promises for us individually, for our spouse, for our home, for our family, for our marriage. The enemy wants to destroy. That's what the serpent did. He destroyed a marriage first thing in the book. But we trust in the one who came to crush the head of the serpent and to give us hope and wholeness and happiness in our marriages. And we pray for the protection of our marriages to not let us give in to the deception of the enemy, to not turn us against one another. But may we be truly delivered, and may we pursue Christ together and have true delivered marriages in our church that glorify you and will give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.